Let us pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that you always have more light and love and truth to reveal to us from your holy word. We ask for the guidance and the movement of your Holy Spirit here among us today. Guide us into your way of peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I read our opening verses in this passage today about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. A scene from the recent movie, The Butler, came to mind. And I'm wondering how many of you have seen this movie? Okay, quite a number of you. In that movie, uh, directed by Lee Daniel, Daniels, there's a scene where a group of African-American students back in the 1960s goes to sit down at a whites-only section of a food counter down in the south. And as soon as they sit down, a crowd of white folks swarms around them, yelling in their ears, slapping the back of their heads, pouring ketchup into their hair, throwing coffee right into their faces, and quite literally beating some of them to the ground. These young people were literally sacrificing their bodies in order to overcome the evil of racial segregation. Now, one of the most riveting scenes for me in this movie came right before that scene. It's something that we rarely hear about and is a very crucial part of the story of the civil rights movement, and that is the training that took place before they went to the lunch counter. These young people, you see, carefully trained how to overcome their instinct not to strike back. They trained very carefully how to endure this kind of terrible abuse. They trained how to nonviolently overcome evil with good. In the words of Martin Luther King, they were learning how, they were training in how to meet physical force with soul force. In his great commission, you'll remember that Jesus calls on us in the church to make disciples who are learning to obey and to follow everything he taught. Learning how to live and to love like Jesus. And I invite us now to if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, to turn to Romans 12, where Paul describes what this kind of radical discipleship will look like in our daily lives. Verse 2 talks about the transforming of our minds, which is so crucial. 
Verse 9, holding fast. Holding on for dear life to what is good. Verse 12, being patient in our times of suffering. Verse 14, or verse 13, welcoming strangers. Verse 14, blessing those who curse us. Ever done that? Verse 18, living peaceably with all. Verse 19, ministering, feeding, giving drink to our enemies. And then verse 21, which in many ways sums up the very life of Jesus, the whole work and life and ministry of our Lord, overcoming evil with good. In several of his books, Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher who's done a whole lot of work on Christian formation and discipleship, laments that the church, especially in the United States, is so often failing in our central task of making disciples who are actually doing these things in our daily lives. He says that the American church has turned the Great Commission into the Great Omission. Too many of us, too many of us, still only believe in Jesus and have not yet made the life-transforming decision to actually follow Him and obey Him and to train to train in his ways. And so, uh, here on Peace Sunday at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, it feels like an especially appropriate morning to ask ourselves, here at East Chestnut, are we actually learning how to live as Jesus taught? Is Christ's character being formed in us in such a thorough and fulsome way that at that crucial moment, and we all have these crucial moments at school, at work, in our neighborhoods, during a national crisis like 9-11, loving our enemy and blessing those who curse us is actually our first reflex. the default setting of our lives. Now I want to focus this morning on this kind of training, our outer training and our inner training. But before we go there, I want to make sure, it's so important, that we don't miss a crucial word in verse 1. It's that word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. (laughs) Now, this implies that something really, really important happened before, and if we just plow on ahead to what's after, we're going to miss the motivation, the reason for why we should follow these teachings later on. You see, in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans... Paul tells us again and again why 
we should follow the teachings that follow that therefore. Because, he tells us, of the lavish grace and mercy and peace that God has extended to us in Jesus Christ. He sums it up in an especially vivid way in chapter 5, where he tells us that in Jesus, the usual pattern of the world's reconciliation has been completely reversed. In the old tradition, you brought your sacrifice to God, and then you were forgiven and reconciled. But in Jesus, even while we were all still lost and alienated, even while we were still God's enemies, God reached out to us in Jesus Christ, offering us mercy and peace. And for those of us who reach back, there is reconciliation. And so in chapter 12, Paul's therefore is a call for all of us as well to reach out to our enemies in the same way that God and Jesus Christ has reached out to us. And to do this as our grateful response, as our thank you for all that God has done for us. Now, Though we might feel grateful for what God has done for us, how can we ever hope to do something as impossible as loving our neighbors, which is the central focus of the second half of our passage today? You know, all we have to do is think for a moment about our selfish neighbor, our arrogant colleague at work, our rude relative, or someone who has just recently heard us to connect with how difficult this is in reality. And I think this is maybe why enemy love has been called the most admired but least practiced teaching of Jesus in all of history. We love to talk about it, but it's really hard to do. Amen? And I think here we would do well to remember that Jesus spent three whole years training, training his disciples. And he gives us an essential example to follow. What I'm saying here is that after we're baptized, expecting that all of us immediately we'll know how to love our enemies and overcome evil with good quite naturally is as absurd as a beginner asking a beginner to go out and run a marathon. Or asking a novice to go to the piano and play a Mozart concerto. You know, a friend of mine is a soccer coach, and he says it takes 10,000 repetitions for the proper instincts to come into our muscle memory. And if any of you were or are athletes, you know that's true. These 10,000 repetitions 
are crucial. Why should Christian discipleship be any different? I hope you're beginning to see what this means for us here at East Chestnut Mennonite Church. By God's design, a central purpose of our church, a central purpose for East Chestnut is to untrain all of us in the violent and hateful ways of our world. And we need to be untrained. That is what Paul is talking about by this transformation. Untrained in these ways and retrained retrained in the ways of Christ so that they become our first reflex and instinct in our daily living. And so what that means is it's here at East Chestnut, and I think this reframes why we come to church. We come here to be trained in making peace in our circle of relationships. We come here to be trained in how to break down the walls of racism that divide people and that divide often our own hearts. We come here to build friendships with the poor and to learn how to be advocates for them in our larger culture where people seem to care less and less about their well-being. We come here to be trained in learning how to decode the lies of the empire, which invariably assume that violence is the answer to almost every problem. Through 10,000 repetitions here at East Chestnut, we and our children are learning steadily how to see the world with the mind, with the mind of Christ. But you might be sitting there and saying, yeah, preacher, (laughs) I know I should love my enemy. The problem is I can't do it. I don't know how. I just can't find it in my heart to do so. And I think hidden in chapter 12 is our clue to the inner training that needs to accompany our outer training here at East Chestnut. You'll see it in verse 12. Persevere in prayer. Prayer, you see, intimately connects us, connects us with God, the only one who can soften our hearts and melt away our hostility. You know, I find it so fascinating. Have you ever noticed this? Jesus never tells us not to have enemies. He apparently assumes that we're just always going to have them. Instead, what does he do? He teaches us to pray for them. Matthew 5, 44. Pray for your enemies. And then Jesus doesn't just talk about this. 
he models it incredibly for us on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, dear friends, if we have never prayed for our enemies, and many, many Christians never have, how do we start? We can pray, first of all, to God for new vision. To be able to somehow, some way, see God's image in them even though it seems so obscured and hidden, to see them as a precious child of God for whom Jesus died. We can pray for alertness and creativity to have our minds transformed so that we can actually see when a door for peace is opening. Without prayer, often we don't even see those doors or their presence in our lives. Our prayer time with God, our prayer time with God can also be silent. It doesn't only have to be with words. It might involve each day simply being still before God with the simple intention of asking God to soften our hearts, to take away that hostility that we know is in deep within. Whether spoken or silent, prayer is the inner training that needs to go hand in hand with our outer training as followers of Jesus. Prayer allows us to receive Christ's peace, and then energizes us to share it with others. There's a beautiful story from the life of Martin Luther King that illustrates this. It was late one night in the middle of the 1956 Montgomery bus strike. How many of you remember that? If you come to my office, you'll see I have a Time magazine cover with Martin Luther King and the buses behind him. That was six years before, seven years before I was born. But in 1956, Martin Luther King, deep in the night, got out of bed to go answer his telephone. It was ringing. And it was another one of the death threats that he had been receiving again and again. And this one was especially hateful, especially venomous. And that night, King said that he was gripped with a terror for himself and his family like he had never felt before. Just sheer terror. He couldn't sleep. So he went down to the kitchen for a cup of coffee, and that wouldn't have helped him to be able to sleep anymore. And sitting there, he tried to think of some way to quit, to resign from the leadership without looking like a coward. And finally, he bowed his head and he prayed. 
And he said, Lord, I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left, and I can't face these dangers alone. And he said that right at that moment, he heard from God very clearly these words, stand up for righteousness and for truth. I will always be with you. And three nights later, his home was actually firebombed. But amazingly, he said that he was able to receive this news with complete calm. Having received Christ's peace, he was now able to be a channel of it to others, to meet physical force with soul force. I invite us now to respond by rising and sharing with one another a sign of Christ's peace. And then we will respond as well by singing number 407 in our hymnals.